deep to center, but that'll end the ballgame. Hazley makes the catch, and the White Sox, in blowout fashion, take game two of this four game set against their division opponents in the Tigers. 12 3, the final. Apple TV with a credit on that. The White Sox destroyed Los Tigres. 12-3. As I said, part of the, the greatest day road teams have ever had, greatest run differential day road teams have had since 1900. That's a thing, and there your White Sox are doing it, plus nine, doing it for the cause. Welcome and welcome back to Saturday Suckage. I'm Steve Rosenblum. Go to the Score Hotline, presented by Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. And bringing in from CHGO, man on the White Sox, he is Vinny Duber. Vinny, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. You got it. How's it going? Well, so far okay. I've I've been told by a texter that I'm a monument to bong endurance, and I guess in these long mm. weekends you need to. I don't know. I don't. <clears throat> I will ask the indelicate question: Indica or sativa? Indica couch or sativa on a long weekend like this? I, Whew, I'm going to need a. Uh, I'm going to need a an urban dictionary. I think with some of those. Okay. Some All of right. those words you got there. All right. Let's watch it. <laughs> Watching the White Sox, yeah. you will need to have a full bowl at times. I don't understand them. I understand watching this team, watching Michael Kopech and Lance Lynn, and their last couple outings have been, oh, my God, kind of stuff because Kopech with 15 innings and 19 strikeouts and no runs and – and Lance Lynn, not as not as gaudy a number, but this is a guy with the with a kind of ERA that he had seven fifty one before that, and now suddenly nineteen innings and only four earned runs in that time. It seems though, I thought those were the two White Sox pitchers most affected by the pitch timing, and with those guys in shape and those guys getting used to it and those guys learning to control games. Was I wrong? Do you agree with that? Do you think what other things, if not that, have contributed to where they are now, those two starters? Yeah, well, I mean, the pitching has has really shown up lately. And I think, you know, you go back to that horrible first month of April and, and really everywhere you looked, everything was going wrong for this team. And, and that included a pitching staff that was expected way back in spring training to be something that they really could have leaned on and, and really relied upon all year. Um, it didn't get off to that kind of start, as everybody knows. But here we are, uh, you know, at the end of May, and that pitching staff seems to be coming back to life. Uh, obviously, they got a long way to go to make this a, uh, a you know a season long trend rather than uh, just a, a few weeks here in May. But uh, Kopech certainly the last two games has been fantastic. After he was dealing with various problems early in the year on, on kind of just figuring things out, which included, if you'll remember, uh, that that home opener that he pitched, uh, tipping some pitches and, and all sorts of stuff. So Lance Lynn, you remember back to last year after he came back from the long layoff from the, from the surgery, how long it kind of took him to get back into the groove uh, uh, as well. And we thought maybe because what we saw in the World Baseball Classic that he was kind of going to be ready to go from, from the jump uh, during the regular season – didn't turn out that way. Obviously, you mentioned the ERA, but here we are, and he's getting things going again. Lucas Giolito's kind of been 
the the most consistent guy in that starting staff. Uh, and Dylan Cease, while he doesn't really look much like the guy who finished second in the Cy Young race last year, um, the numbers have been okay and, and, and certainly improving at that. So this does look like a pitch, that pitching staff that we thought the White Sox were going to have way back in the spring, one that could, you know, really kind of help carry them throughout the whole summer. At least they're closer to first place than last place, which wasn't the case a week ago. They are they are at least at, at least wherever they are in the standings in a bad division. And I'm going to ask you about being in a bad division in a year where you don't get a preponderance of division games, but you play everybody equally. This would be the year the Sox would want to have the unbalanced schedule and play the division, right? Play all the bad teams you can. Do something. Yeah, certainly that would help, right? Uh, but uh, but that's uh, that's a thing of the past at this point. Uh, still, though, they're going to see these teams a lot. They're right in the middle of such a, of a really long stretch against their division opponents, and they're going to see plenty more of Kansas City and Detroit and, and a Cleveland team that, while it won the division last year, uh, has really looked uh, nothing like that here so far. So uh, the Twins as well. Uh, you know that that's a that's a roster that's got some talent on it, no doubt about it, but. How come they haven't pulled away? How come they didn't take the opportunity to bury the White Sox after the White Sox really kind of dug that huge hole for themselves in April? It never happened. And so this really seems like no matter um, how mediocre or sub-mediocre, if you're talking about just what the record says, uh, the White Sox might be throughout the course of the season, it doesn't really seem like until something changes with the with the twins or any other team in the, that they're going up against that they're really going to be out of this and uh I, you know I, I think that they in the clubhouse have the right mindset that they're not like you know oh yeah we're we're right there we're right there i think they know that they've got a lot of work to do pedro grafola said a couple times over the course of the, the the last few days here you know they're not making the playoffs or winning the division at 10 games under 500 so they know they've got a long way to go but they could be they could be dead and buried at this point uh, had had the division been different uh, and it hasn't so that's uh, good news for them. Talking with Vinnie Duber, CHGO, talking about the White Sox here on the score. The you wrote about Andrew Benatendi, and I don't know that what would have been a fair ask. Guy hasn't hit a home run, so he's got as many home runs as we do, Vinny. <laughs> Guy hasn't hit a home run. What should we have expected from him? What what do the whites what did the White Sox expect? And and maybe they won't tell you how frustrated they are. But he's equally frustrated. He may not be as mad as some fans and thinking what a disaster this is. But he realizes he sucks in the power department. So what did he have to say? How did he respond to you when you were writing this? Well, Basically, you got to go back a couple of years from when he switched from playing his home games at Fenway Park in Boston to playing his home games at Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City, which is a very uh, uh, large uh, playing surface. It's a, it's a pitcher-friendly park, and he, he basically retooled his entire approach and said, you know, I'm not going to try to muscle balls out of this deep, deep ballpark. I'm going to go ahead and just get hits and get on base. And he did it very successfully. He was an all-star and, and moving now to the South side, he's realized, Hey, the, some of the things that I was trying to avoid hitting a 380 foot fly ball that would have just been an easy out at Kauffman stadium could be a home run. 
here uh, at, at, at guaranteed rate field, depending on which ball, part of the ballpark you're hitting it to. So uh, he's in the process of, of making that adjustment again a few years after he made it uh, to, to go play for the Royals. So um, it's taking a while. I'm sure he wouldn't like, I'm sure he would prefer that it, that it didn't take so long, but he is in the middle of that process and making the adjustments, tweaking the swing, however he needs to do it in order to start hitting some more home runs. That all being said, the uh, the the status that he has uh, of the highest paid free agent signing in in White Sox history aside, he's not necessarily being paid or being brought in here to be a home run hitter. Uh, you know, I, they know that he has some power that he can hit some home runs. This guy who has hit 20 homers in a season before, but. He's here to do a whole host of things that were, by the way, needs for this White Sox team over the offseason, whether it has to do with the defense that he plays in left field, whether it has to do with, uh, you know, his ability on the base paths or, or some of the fundamental parts of his game that were such a such a giant glaring weakness for the White Sox last season when they had the disappointing 500 finish. Uh, he fills those needs as well. That being said, also. Perhaps the team's biggest need this offseason was was uh, improving their power. They thought they were going to get that from the guys that were already there. So Andrew Benintendi maybe you know getting a, a bit of an unfair rap just because he wasn't he's not necessarily expected to come in here and be Barry Bonds and have a whole ton of home runs right now, but he knows that he can pro- provide some power and certainly he the White Sox and absolutely their fans uh, would like to see him do so. Benny Duber is my guest, CHGO White Sox. You can. You can hear him, see him, watch him, just like you're hearing him on the score. So let me ask you what you think is fair for a rookie manager who too often early on appeared to sound like and look like a rookie manager. And on top of that, I don't know where, I don't know how you think it's fair, what you think is fair to grade Pedro Grifol. But the one thing I started with was he said, you know what, we're going to come out, we're going to, try to kick your ass every day. We're going to hustle and run it. I haven't seen that. I've seen days where this team looks dead. I've seen this days where this team is not prepared, not mentally or emotionally prepared. They're not going to play that day. And I think that's a failure of the manager based on what he said he would do. One of the first things he could do. What do you think is a fair way to grade him so far? And what do you think that grade is? It's a good question. I mean, I think at the end of the day, he's the manager of the team. And so with the record being what it is, I think, you know, uh, at, at, at points here, double digit games under 500, w- way worse than I think anybody would have guessed from just a strictly record standpoint, you know, that's not good. And so he, he probably doesn't deserve a very good grade as the manager of that team. Um, that being said, he walked into a situation that a rookie manager does not often walk into uh, which is the supposed middle of a, of a contention window supposed a team that was supposed to uh, you know be able to compete for a championship and usually you see managers getting their first chance in in different situations at the other end of the uh, spectrum maybe with a team that is in the thick of a rebuild or a team that is um, you know not going necessarily for that playoff spot uh, uh, or, or that World Series spot even. Um, but, yeah, you, you brought up everything that he said at his, uh, at his introductory press conference, and through, especially throughout the first month of the season, you saw basically the same problems 
that plagued this team in 2022. You know, you, you, you bring up a, a lot of the energy and, and, and some of those intangible things, but even look to something uh, like defensive mistakes and, and, and base running errors and, and those fundamental problems that were, uh, you know, driving people so crazy, a lack of power, a lack of consistent uh, hitting. Uh, and, and then obviously all the trouble that they had in the bullpen as well. So um, it, for a, for a team that wasn't going to change the roster very much over the offseason, they put a lot of responsibility on Pedro and, and the new coaching staff to get those problems fixed. And when they left and, and when, they, when they ended up having this horrible first month of April, it didn't look like any of those problems were fixed or many of those problems were fixed. They're playing better lately, sure, but as I mentioned before, they got a long way to go. They got to they, they got to look a lot better and play a lot better for a much longer period of time if you're going to be able to truly call this a you know a turnaround or anything like that. So um, I, I think maybe that uh, he doesn't, you know, in a, in a vacuum, he probably wouldn't deserve the sort of quote unquote blame that we're talking about, but. Given that you know Rick Hahn in that front office placed the job of improving this team on him, you know when you don't see that improvement, that's where you've got to look. Even though a, a tough circumstance for him to walk into. Well, that's why he. I, that's why he's here, and and I look at this first and foremost. Like you, you made a wonderful point. Supposedly in the middle of their window. So yesterday, the Rangers beat the playoff-bound Orioles, a quality team in the Orioles, a playoff contender in the toughest division in baseball. The Rangers beat them 12-2. to The Rangers are 32-18, and the best 50-game start in their franchise history. They're managed by, by Bruce Bochy. The White Sox did not hire Bruce Bochy. They hired a guy out. They hired. They finally went outside their DNA and they hired somebody who wasn't from their organization. They avoided hiring a deluxe manager who has three World Series rings when they're in the middle of their World Series window, supposedly. He has as many, Bruce Bochy has as many rings as the chairman and Kenny and Rick have combined. I don't know what you knew about that situation. Maybe they seriously looked at him. Maybe they didn't. But... That would frustrate me, and I know the CHGO guys are fans before they're anything else. Do you guys look at that? Do you guys wonder about that? Do you guys get mad about that? Well, I, I think, you know, I think you'd have to ask, you know, Sean and Herb specifically on, on what they see from a fan perspective. What I can tell you from just, you know, looking at it as a, as, as a, as a reporter is just the, the resume that you just described there for Bruce Bochy a tremendous manager, one of the all-time greats, a Hall of Fame manager with three World Series rings. Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds <laughs> a, sounds like the guy that the White Sox hired a couple of off-seasons ago. But he's it? still so, awake. That's the difference. Bruce Bochy is still awake. I, I, I obviously am not making a direct comparison there, but I think there is something to say they wanted to go a very different route from what they had experienced the last two years. And, uh, you know, the going for these fresh perspectives Rick kept talking about bringing in people who think differently and see the, you know, the new game, the way that it is being played today and all of that. And and not only that, but a guy who has watched this White Sox team from being with the Kansas city Royals for as long as he was. So I think that Pedro probably met the criteria of someone that they uh, 
not only wanted for, for a, uh, a, a fresh perspective from what they had the last two seasons, but as someone then who could be with this team for the, for the long haul. Let's be honest. Uh, whether whether you have uh, positive, negative, or extremely negative reviews of the hire that was made in bringing in Tony La Russa, the thing that you could not deny when he was hired was this is a guy who knows how to get a team to the World Series. And uh, so if you were looking for a short-term, hey, just get us to, to one championship kind of thing, then Tony, for, for all the uh, flaws that White Sox fans pointed out that he had or that they thought that he had, that was the one job that he could have done or, or was supposed to do. Uh, so Pedro is not that, but Pedro perhaps is a hall, is a uh, longer haul of a hire, so to speak. You know, you've you've watched this team for a while, Vinny. You've been on it. You've been writing about him. Why can't Vinny Duber is my guest? CHGO is the place to catch all of him. Why? Why do the White Sox not make it an organizational imperative to catch the ball? Why do they suck defensively when it would seem to be the thing that travels best, travels easiest, and is simply a matter of work? Why does this organization suck at that part of teaching, implementing, however you want to look at it? Why? Well, um, I, I will I will talk about the, the, the team that they have currently, and certainly a lot of those players have carried over from the last couple of seasons, and I think it's probably more, more of a um, – assessment of those players maybe currently and then the way that those pieces have been put together so obviously last year to the team's own admission they had a lot of guys playing out of position whether it was Andrew Vaughn or Gavin Sheets in the outfield uh, or, or some or, or some other things and then they say they want to go ahead and and fix that this offseason and them moving on from Jose Abreu was supposed to be the big solve of that problem Andrew Vaughn gets to come and play first base every day they go out and they get Benintendi to 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 boost the defense in left field and 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 Oscar Colas is supposed to do that as well in right field and then what happens Oscar Colas has some defensive struggles to go along with his offensive ones and he's down in the minors after a month and who's back out in right field Gavin Sheets who's going to be back out in right field perhaps as soon as uh, the next couple of days when he comes back from his rehab assignment Aloy Jimenez who of course people have uh, such a vast <laughs> knowledge of what uh, he has been able to do in his time as an outfielder. So um, the pieces on this team right now uh, put there to hit were put there to hit. And I think that, uh, you know, certainly last year, the idea was, okay, we got, they got some guys playing out of position. Sure. Maybe the defense isn't so great all the way around, but Hey, they're going to hit so many home runs that you're not even going to notice the, 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 the defense is what it is. It's not even going to make that big of a difference because of all the home runs. And then what happened, the team's entire power goes out for basically the entirety of the season. So um, this team was built to hit and hit and hit. And when it doesn't do that, the other weaknesses become all the more glaring. And uh, now they're talking about maybe giving Jake Berger some time at second base. Uh, you know, this is, this is being done in an effort to increase their run total uh, and, and get a, uh, as many bats in the lineup as they can. And uh, you might have that same complaint that you just uh, voiced in that question going forward, because right now they seem to be putting the emphasis on uh, putting as much hitting in the lineup as they can kind of uh, defensive issues, wherever they might be, be damned. Uh, they're just gaslighting people. They just say a bunch of crap and none of it happens. Oh my God. Vinny, I would <clears throat> tell Herb, just tell Herb I said, hi, tell Herb, 
not to blow a gasket when they get no hit today because that's where it's headed, and then Jake Berger's going to play second, and everything old is new again. I appreciate you spending time today with me. Thanks, Vinny. You got it. Thank you so much. Vinny Duber, CHGO. Oh, my God. You're just dealing with, yeah, we're going to be better defensively. We're going to be better. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to play baseball. Oh, yeah, Jake Berger. He's working out at second because, oh. <clears throat> All right. Well, that's the clown show part. We're going to. I'm going to take a break. When I come back, because later, later on in this hour, we'll bring you a replay of Joe Girardi, courtesy of Mark Key, was on the stage on Parkins and Spiegel. Tremendous. I got a story leading up to that about Joe Girardi, a man. Uh, he was Captain Credibility. I'll share that with you before we end this version of Saturday Suckage. I'm Steve Rosenblum. Thanks for spending part of your holiday weekend with me. Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. It's Saturday Suckage on 670 The Score. And I'm Steve Rosenblum. I'm Stevie Suckage. Hey, welcome back. So it was <clears throat> ring of the Joe Girardi interview, courtesy of Marquis. He joined Parkins and Spiegel, courtesy of Marquis. It was June 22nd, 2002. I remember that day. That's my birthday. A glorious Saturday. It was Cubs, Cardinals, Wrigley Field, 40,000 fans. And Daryl Kyle, card-starting pitcher, was found dead in his Western hotel room. That is what happened. But... Could they have played? Could they have not have played? No, they can't play this game. Tony La Russa, managing the cards, takes Andy McPhail, president of the, of the Cubs, into the visiting clubhouse, says, look at my team. We cannot play. We can't do this. McPhail looks at the Cardinals team and goes, oh, my God. We got, <clears throat> this is awful. They got on the horn with the commissioner's office, and they arrive at a decision to postpone the game. Now, here's the thing. This is about, I don't know, 12.30, 1 o'clock. We know when they play. We know they play at 1.20. We know they play in the afternoon. Somebody has to get, somebody has to tell 40,000 well-lubricated fans in this rivalry, so they're all geared up, that they got to go home. Sorry. You don't have to go home. But you can't stay here. No game today. So who's going to do that? Well, it's a Cubs home game. So Andy McPhail? Ha! Reviled team president. Okay, how about Don Baylor, the manager? You kidding me? Baylor would be fired a couple months, a couple weeks after this. Don Baylor would be gone shortly after the 4th of July. All right, well... How about Tony LaRusso? Oh, really? You're going to have the Cardinals manager? He may have had a lot of credibility at that time. Sox fans, I'm sorry. There was a time where he had all that credibility. But he's the, you're not going to have a visiting manager stand out there and say, y'all go home. So what are they going to do? Well, Cubs roster included, you know, Kerry Wood. People believe Kerry Wood, right? I don't know. Mark Pryor, Carlos Zambrano. Pat Mahomes, yes, I said Pat Mahomes. He was on that staff that year. Pat Mahomes, 
Okay. They settled on Joe Girardi. They settled on a backup catcher. Todd Hundley was the catcher. Nobody wanted any part of Todd Hundley. Joe Girardi was captain credibility. It tells you about the Cubs organization then in 2002 that the man with the most credibility was a backup catcher. But then Joe Girardi has always been that guy, had that kind of credibility. He has had that kind of image. You saw it as a player here. As a catcher for the Yankees on World Series champions, he caught a perfect game. He caught a no-hitter. He won a World Series. In fact, he changed his number from 27 to 28 because he was he managed the 27th Yankees World Series, and he was going to manage number 28. Captain Credibility, indeed. That's Joe Girardi. I love that story. It speaks to who the man is and where he was in this organization and what he would what he would mean to the organization. Now he's on marquee. I'll take a break. When I come back, I will bring you the Joe Girardi interview he did with Parkins and Spiegel, courtesy of Marquee. Saturday Suckage, Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. It's Saturday Suckage on 670 The Score. I'm Steve Rosenblum. Welcome in. Welcome back. We are going to bring you the Joe Girardi interview on Parkins and Spiegel, courtesy of Joe Joined Us, courtesy of Marquee. I want to thank everyone who listened. I want to thank everything, everyone who joined me and Cesar Perez, and maybe you won't be such a bad boy and you'll be able to <clears throat> work on big boy shows later on. And I want everyone to have a safe weekend and remember and thank those who gave, the, gave their lives so we could be free. And now, a replay of the Joe Girardi interview in Parkinson Spiegel. Joe Girardi joined us courtesy of Marquee, Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. Thrilled to have Joe Girardi on the show by way of the Circa Resort and Casino Hotline. Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Hey, Joe, how you doing today? I'm good, Danny and Matt. How are you guys? We're doing very well, sir. Uh, just talking about a very efficient Cubs win last night, and that leading into Kyle Hendricks tonight, pretty good moment for the Cubs right now. Yeah, I think they played a lot better the last couple of days. I mean, they went through a really rough road trip, and they gave one game away, and that was kind of hard. But, like, they've been really crisp games. They've been well-pitched games. Their starters have done what they've done all year long for the most part, and you've had some good timely hitting. You got to love when the sinker is sanking, um, like Marcus yeah. Stroman said in February and Tucker Barnhart spitting it back out. The location of Stroman was, was, was so good um, just over and over and over. That's got to be fun as a catcher when a guy knows what he's doing and keeps hitting his spots. Oh, yeah. When you know that you can call pretty much any pitch at any time and he's going to locate it. And, you know, I watched him last night, and I was surprised he gave up two runs. I really think he made, like, one mistake the whole night. And I've seen a lot of Marcus Stroman in, in, in my years, um, managed against him a number of years in Toronto. And I can say that's as good a stuff as I've seen him have. And um, he gave him eight great innings, and then you get a, you know, Leiter comes in and does his job, and one, two, three, and you don't have to face the polar bear. So Marcus Stroman has pitched really well this year, and it's great to see. Yeah, and we were talking about it, how it was, uh, they needed an easy one in terms of the decisions for David Ross, right? Like eight innings from your starter, one relief pitcher, and it's your one relief pitcher and Leiter who's been amazing. 
Jed took blame uh, the last couple of days for not giving David Ross more good options. What's the feeling as a manager when you look at the names on your lineup card for bullpen options and you don't trust any of them? Yeah, it's difficult because the one thing that you don't want to do is you don't want to ruin the confidence of the player. So you're trying to put them in situations where they can be successful. And sometimes they get in a rut just like a hitter does. And sometimes a bullpen gets in a rut just like the offense does. And it seems like whoever you put in doesn't get the job done. The thing is that you have to continue to do whatever you can to put them in situations to build their confidence and let them take steps forward and maybe continue to improve. He's got a lot of young guys down there, um, which has been probably a little bit difficult. And guys that weren't always bullpen guys, they were starters. So trying to use them two days in a row is kind of difficult at times. So it it has not been easy for him to navigate for a while. He didn't have a left-hander in his bullpen. Um, But it seems that Leiter Jr. has done a pretty good job at the back end. And you can count on him and then you can mix and match the rest of the way. But, you know, I was spoiled in New York. I went through it one year in Philly uh, and, and we changed everyone out and it still didn't work. Right. We made a couple of trades, got some guys from Boston that didn't work. And it's, it's frustrating as a manager. And what you really feel is you truly feel for the guys. Cause you know that they're trying and, and they're probably trying too hard which makes things worse. You know, an answer like that is it it reminds us like how recently you've been in that job. Like there were times, there were times last year, Joe, when you were doing a couple games, the back half of the year, it's like, Oh yeah, it feels like Girardi was a manager 10 minutes ago because he was so like, it's been really interesting addition to the booth. So, so how does it feel when a GM comes out, whether, you know, you've had Dombrowski, you've had Cashman, you've had a bunch of guys. If, if a GM comes out and does what Jed did for David Ross the other day and say, hey, that's on me. I put the skipper in a tough spot. Is that a powerful thing when a GM has your back like that? Yeah, it, it really is. But it lasts for about four hours until you get in the game. And then if it doesn't go the right way, you know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily make you feel any better. But I'm I'm sure for David, it, it's comforting that, that they know that he's faced with some challenging decisions when – you know, the starters give you six, and then how do we get through seven, eight, nine? It's challenging decisions, and it may not always work. And, you know, that has to make him feel better for the moment. But once you're in that game, you want to win. I mean, David Ross is a winner. He's won. He's used to winning. And he gets really frustrated. And I know when he makes a decision, I'm, I'm quite sure. I don't know for sure. But when he goes home at, at night and the decision didn't work, like every manager, you probably think, well, should I put this guy in? But everything that was in front of you told you to put that guy in. But then you say to yourself, okay, what did I do wrong? And, and that's the hard part of managing. And, and you're holding on information that we don't know as, as we're watching, yeah. right? Like there had to be times where you're like, these dumb fans, they don't know that this guy can't go or that guy's been burned. You ever just want to tell people stuff so they don't question yeah. you? I mean, usually I do it after the game if I know that, you know, I didn't have a guy. But the one thing is you don't want to give the, the, the manager on the other side an advantage. Let's just say you have one left-hander and you announce that your left-hander's down that day. They can stack as many lefties as they want in a row, and, and they don't have to worry about it. So you try to keep as much to the, to the vest. Um, you communicate to the players what you're going to do and if they're down that day. But, I mean, that's part of the job. And, and, and look, w- when you're in this job, you, you, you got to take bullets. That's the bottom line. You got to take hits because you have to protect your strategy and you have to protect your players. Joe Girardi with us, Parkinson Spiegel on the score. 
we judge all the time. We have these conversations. What? How valuable is a manager? What is his fault? What does he get credit for? How many wins does a good one count for? How many losses is a bad manager for? All that stuff. What are fair yeah. critici- What are fair criticisms of managers, Joe? How should we be talking about it? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to say. I I, I think it's really hard to measure because I think a manager, in, in a sense, sets a tone every day, sets a work ethic every day. What he expects from his players helps develop that culture. Um, but the bottom line, in once the game starts, players have to make plays. Right. It's, it's like in basketball, players have to make shots, you know, and you can you can blame the head coach. But the bottom line is they have to make shots and they have to do defensive rotations. And you have to expect that guys will run the bases the right way and, and they'll be prepared. And I think it's really hard to judge. But I, but I think the biggest thing that a manager has to do is he has to earn the respect and get the heart of the players where they trust that he's doing everything he can to help them to have the best career that they can possibly can and be successful. And and when you're able to do that, I don't think you can measure how many wins because there's a comfort that the players come to the ballpark every day feeling like they got a great shot to win. And how are you going to measure that? Boy, that's a great answer. That's a really interesting, interesting answer because it makes all the sense in the world in terms of working environment and making somebody successful and providing that atmosphere. So, yeah, we're never going to be able to quantify it. We'll still talk about it, though. We'll still take wild yeah, shots yeah. into the I mean, air. I, yeah, and I think, it, I think it's a great discussion. But, but I can tell you, I've made moves that I know in the bottom of my heart they're the right move, and they haven't worked. Yeah. Just because there's a human element, right? These guys aren't robots, and... There are going to be days that they have off days, and they just haven't worked. Do you, uh, do you, Joe Girardi? Do you hate the three batter rule? I do. Okay. <laughs> um, someone was telling me that Jeff Passan wrote an article today about robo umps and how it like depreciates the value of catchers that frame right. And I said, well, what about how they depreciated the value of the three batter rule, left-handed relievers, right? I mean, I remember going to Texas in September, and they would have six left-handed relievers and they go left, right, left, right. And the games would take forever. Right. And and I understand why they did it, but I think it's unfair working conditions for left-handed relievers that built their whole life on getting left-handers out. So I I am not a fan of the rule because I think it's you knowing how to manage your bullpen and work your bullpen and the strategy that you have against the other manager. I'm against it. Does it help? For offense, I don't know. Does it speed up the game? I don't think so. Um, so I, I'm not for it, and I never have been, and I've always yelled about it. I, I hate it. So I, I remember that every time I read about the rule, Joe, the example that they would give is like, well, you gotta, you got to do this because some managers are overmanaging, like Joe Girardi. Like you were the poster, poster child. Oh, it should be called the Joe Girardi rule and, <laughs> and not the yeah. three batter rule. Did, did you ever hear it that way, that like, like people used to target you, Joe, as the reason this no, rule exists? No, I didn't because I didn't necessarily have a lot of left-handers in my bullpen, right? I mean, I, I, when I was in New York all those years, I had a knockdown, dragout bullpen. So I went to one guy in the ninth, one guy in the eighth, and one guy in the seventh. Yeah, you were now in the win. fifth and sixth. I might I might have mixed and matched a little bit with a left-handed, right-handed, but I, I didn't think I really ever did that. Um, 
you know, managers get accused of overmanaging a lot, but the information that you're presented to you before the games and during the course of the year dictates what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Joe Girardi with us on the Parkinson Spiegel show. All right, so let's cross that off. It is, it, it's you, not the Joe it's Girardi It's not role. fair to call it the Joe Girardi no, That makes sense. Noted. Joe, this is maybe going to feel like it's coming out of left field, but maybe our favorite guest uh, that we have on this show all the time, he's all of our friends, is uh, Dave Wanstead. And oh, I love Wani. Okay, of course. Who, and, who doesn't? Yeah. Can you detail from your perspective <laughs> uh, your real estate history with Dave? Because to hear him tell <laughs> yeah. it that like you guys like live in the same house multiple times, or he next bought, door, he ne- next ne- door in multiple locations. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So in Chicago, we both lived in Lake Forest, and we lived next door. Well, I was managing the Yankees, and he got a a job with Tampa Bay. And I said, you know, I rent Curtis Granderson's place. Um, um, It's, it's a condo in Tampa. I'm telling you, it's a great building. You take the elevator to your floor. If it opens on your side, you go right into your apartment basically. And I love it. And it's like 10 minutes from the ballpark. So it's 10 minutes from the football stadium. And he lived there. I mean, you know, I, I love, I used to see him like leave for work at five 30 in the morning and come home at 11 at night. And I'm thinking, man, there ain't no way I ever want to be a football coach, even though I actually love football better than baseball. I, I, I truly do. It's it's my passion, and it's what I love to watch. But the, the amount of hours that they put in is absolutely crazy. How is Dave as a neighbor? Great, but I never saw him, right? I mean, he left too early and got home too late. I was in bed. Wait, so who's your team? You like football more than baseball. Who's your like? Who do you like? Oh, put I'm on a, the jersey I'm for? I'm a Bears fan. I'm a Bears fan. Right? I mean, I grew up in Illinois. I'm okay. a Bears fan. I was a huge Walter Payton fan back in the day, and I remember like Bobby Douglas and and and, and like Reedy Sorry, and, and and you know, obviously, I was right in the middle of of my college years when the Bears won the Super Bowl, and you know, it was. It was fun to be here in Chicago. Do you have Dennis Green as a head coach at Northwestern when you were there? I, what he he was there, yes, yes. Yeah. So, are you a Justin Fields believer? I am. Right. I, I, that did not sound convincing. <laughs> no, 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 no. I want to explain that. Right. I, I don't think I don't think that Justin Fields has been able to show all that he's able to do. Now, there, I, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons why. They don't throw the ball 40 times a game. But I want to know if he can do it, right? I want to find out, like, can the Bears' offense be – I mean, because he's so mobile. Can it be where they throw it 35, 40 times a game? And what happens, right? So, you know, I I think it's unfair to judge him at this point because it's never really been completely turned over to him. Oh, man, you and I should watch football together. That was a great, I, that was a I, great I, take. I agree. Yeah, and, and, and Throw the ball, Joe. And this year, and, you know, Dan, Danny once sang a song called Let Him Throw instead of uh, Let It Go from the Frozen movie, Joe. Yeah, yeah got to let the quarterback yeah. throw the ball. And, and he, right, I mean, just go back to his days at Ohio State or go back to Tua's days at Alabama, right? I mean, they had four first-rounders on the, uh, as receivers, Right. Think about that. I mean, think about the receivers that were at Alabama when when those quarterbacks were there or the receivers at Ohio State. I, I mean, fantastic. So it takes time to build that relationship. And I don't think they've had a ton of consistency. 
Bears postgame show this fall will be Joe Girardi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Look, I mean. Peoria Joe. Let's my, go. Yeah. Mark, he's looking to do some stuff. How about that? Get, yeah. get, get, yeah. Be a football analyst, too? I mean, I, I just – and I love college football. I, I mean, I think college football is just so exciting and so much fun, and I'm excited to see Northwestern's new field in a couple of years. It's just – it changes a campus, right? And that's what I love about it so much. It just changes everything. That's really cool. Talking to Joe Girardi from Marquee here on the Parkinson Spiegel Show. Um, we have – lived through Wilson Contreras and now Jan Gomes. And here's Kyle Hendricks coming into pitch tonight. And Kyle loves working with Jan Gomes and everybody does. What, what is the key as a catcher to handling all the different personalities on a pitching staff? Cause it seems like Jan is gifted at that. What, what is the key to doing it? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I always put it this way. A pitcher has to know that you'll do whatever it takes to get him to, through seven innings that day, and your at-bats don't matter. That's the way I always treated it, right? I always Hmm. think that if I was going to the cage too much, then I wasn't worried enough about the most important thing, and that now it's putting down – it used to be putting down the right digits. Now they push the right buttons, right? So Mm -hmm. it's it's different today than when I did it. But I can go back to watching Jan when he was at Cleveland, right? And Jan was a catcher that always met his pitcher at the foul line and walked in the dugout with his arm around him, talking about probably just what had happened and what was going to happen. So Jan is always thinking about what he needs to do for that pitcher and how am I going to get through this next inning? And I think pitchers respect that. When, when they know that you know more about hitters than they do and their stuff and they can trust you. Like, like John Lieber always used to say, I just want to, I asked him his philosophy on the, on the, on the plane when we were going to Chicago, my first year here, I said, what's your, what's your philosophy on pitching? And he said, just hit the mitt. So what does that mean to me? He trusts whatever you put down and he's just going to execute it. And when a pitcher has that faith in his catcher, it's a great relationship. Well, that's interesting because that speaks to what you were saying about a manager's job, which is to make the guys as comfortable as possible for their career. And that's the catcher's job for for one game to help that person get through. But overall, is that why we don't see that many successful offensive catchers and why we see teams leaning towards a a focus on the defense for the catcher is that – that, that kind of unspoken thing about the pitchers knowing you care about them perhaps more than your own at-bats. Okay. The, the one thing that we'll never, like, we don't see a lot of stats on. We see, like, framing stats and blocking stats and throwing runners out. We don't necessarily see what a catcher does to a pitcher's ERA. So a lot of times what I like to look at is what a pitcher's ERA is with this catcher and what a pitcher's ERA is with the other catcher on the team or other catchers during the course of a year. I don't think you can quantify how many runs a catcher saves, but to me, I I would give Jan Gomes, I I don't know, I mean, a half to an RBI every day (laughs) by what he does behind home plate. Man. What what specifically? I don't think you can do that for any position. Like, like, like why, why that much specifically for him? Because I think he puts down the right, um, pushes the right buttons on his knee, right? What pitch? 
He understands the hitter. He understands how the pitcher's stuff relates to getting that hitter out. For example, like just a real quick example, we were talking about, I think it was Ray Langford in, in a meeting, and they were saying, well, change-ups are really good to him. And Mike Morgan stood up and said, I don't have a change-up. How do I get him out? <laughs> so I think he – Right, so I think yeah. he understands that every every picture that he has, he knows how to get that hitter out with his stuff. That is so important. So you start thinking about who affects the game more, and the other thing is, it gives a confidence to a pitcher that okay, he's right. So whenever there's hesitation or not conviction in throwing a pitch, it's probably not going to be as good as if there was. So when Jan Gomes puts down a finger. There's conviction. Okay, he wants that that slider down and into the left-hander. I believe it, and I'm going to throw it. And they don't worry about it. Jan Gomes is going to block every pitch that I throw. If I want to expand down below the zone, he's saying do it. I trust it, right? What happens if you don't trust it? You usually hang it, right? When you think, oh, I can't throw this ball in the dirt. What are you going to do? You're going to hang it. So I believe that you put Jan Gomes in, he's saving you a half to a run every game. And I think Tucker Barnhart's really good at it too. Hmm. I, I really do. So, but that will never be quantified because you'd have to pay catchers more. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, we've loved this and we've talked about it on the show a few times. Uh, a three-man booth can feel crowded and in the era of pitch clocks, it can sometimes be difficult. But when it's you and uh, JD going back and forth as like the battery in the booth and you just ignore Boog... That, I mean, that's the, that's the good stuff. And then give it back to Boog. Don't let him push you around. All right? I mean, well, we're very yeah, much enjoying I, it's, it. It's just so much fun to work with these guys. And they're so, they're so easygoing. And I, I'm grateful to be here. But there's something about a pitcher and a catcher talking. I just always love it. Because that's, I, I believe that you, you win with pitching, right? And, and I got a left-hander that did it for a long time. And it's just it's just fun to talk about. If, if you can't pitch, you're not going to win in, in this league consistently. Yeah, well, it, it's been great to have JD, and it's also great to have you as a manager and a, and a catcher. It, it, it adds up to a, a really strong booth. I, I, by the way, does um, uh, does, did Boog tell you what the turn the knob thing is that the players are doing? No. He, he won't tell us. No, no, he won't tell anybody. He's you know he's probably you know. And he has the trust of the players, kind of like the the pitcher has to have the trust of a catcher. Oh boy, that's... what are you trying to solve? <laughs> that's going to make his head big. Oh, that's trouble. Yeah. But I got to find a way to irritate him because he called me a grumpy old man last night when I when I said <laughs> enough with all the different types of pitches, right? I mean, yeah, he called he... A, a sweep. A sweeper's a slider that has more, you know, horizontal break, right? It's but to me, it's still the shape of of a slider, right? It's just bigger. Yeah. yeah. I'm with you, Joe. Yeah. You know, go back at Boog. He doesn't know. Tell him, um, ask him to sing, you know, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, put <laughs> him he, out. Of- when he sang, take me out of the ball game. And I assume we'll do it again on Luke Gehrig day. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah. just a brutal, brutal performance <laughs> as a vocalist. So throw that out. Yeah. Well, I, I know I wouldn't be any better, so I, I, got, I got to find something else because he said, okay, big boy, you do it. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> right, that, that is the problem. Joe, thank you so much for the time. This was a lot of fun. We'll do it again. Thank you, sir. Thanks, guys. Have a great day.